Uh, as we continue in chapter 7, as you note, this is the end of our, our time in chapter 7. We've been here for a little while. And uh, it's all, uh, chapter 7 is a response that Paul is giving to a letter that he's received from uh, the church in Corinth. And uh, they had wrote him a letter with various questions, and we're going to, the rest of the book is um, Paul's response to their questions. But in verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And this whole chapter 7 has been specifically matters related to um, sexual relations, um, sexual immorality, about marriage, about singleness, about divorce, about remarriage. And uh, this is the conclusion to that. And I was, as I was thinking through that in my head, um, this is really an example, what I would say, of practical grace and mercy. I don't know if we always think of it that way, but uh, at the very beginning of the letter, Paul writes to these Corinthians, and he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We often think of grace and peace in the spiritual context as the grace that we've received and the uh, peace that we received as a result of the forgiveness of sins and uh, being in a right relationship with God, and that is very true. Those are uh, um, gifts of grace and of peace. But there's also practical ways in which we receive grace and peace, and some of those are in relationships, that right relationships are a gift of God, and they bring peace to our lives. Wrong relationships can result in unrest and, and can be a distraction to us. And so uh, chapter 7 is really an example of practical grace and peace from God being delivered to these Corinthian believers. And Paul has uh, 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 just come out of a uh, I think a central section here in verses 17 to 24 where in the midst of all he's been talking about relationships, one of the things he wants to encourage them is just to stay where you are, uh, to remain in the situation God has called you to. The, uh, Christianity can bring incredible change to one's life. There's, a, there's a, a lot that can be turned upside down, be turned sideways when we come to uh, understand uh, uh, and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And and so these Christians had done that, and it had turned their world upside down, and they had questions about then their relationships on earth, whether they should marry, whether they should stay married, whether they could have sexual relations in their marriage, all these sorts of things that were turned upside down. And so Paul is saying to them, remain. Just stay where you are and allow God to work in your situation and to affirm his call and confirm his call uh, in your life. And he says that, he starts that in verse uh, 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 26, I think he says there, it's good for a person to remain as he is. When we come to the end of the chapter in verse 40, he says there, she is happier if she remains as she is. And so one of Paul's um, words of advice is don't make any rash decisions. Don't make any quish, quick decisions when it comes to relationships. Uh, you notice maybe now that he's dealing with another contact group of people. In, in verse 7, he was dealing with marriage and sexual relations. In verse 8, he then addresses to the unmarried and the widows. In verse 10, he deals with the married. Um, in verse 12, he says to the rest of those, um, those who are married, those who are unmarried, those who are in a relationship with somebody who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. And now in verse 25 and to the end, he's dealing with those who are betrothed, primarily with those who are virgins, who have not yet been married. But he does open the door for those who have been widowed or those who have been divorced. And so his, his advice now is to that group of people. One of the things that you might have detected as Paul um, was writing this was the, the fatherly sort of pastoral tone that he has. I really appreciate that tone um, in Paul, and I appreciate that tone from other people when they're talking to me about certain things. Paul could have pressed his authority home. After all, he was an apostle of God. He had uh, divine authority to, to declare the things of God to people. But he comes with them gently. 
And, and he comes to them with words like advice or I give you my judgment or, or um, you know, I'm trying to spare you this or I don't want to put a noose around your neck or, you know, I, it's, it's my observation that you'll be happier if you do this. That doesn't lessen in any way the force of what he's saying. And, and when, we, when he's writing this to us, he is writing with the full authority of God and it's not that we ought to take it with sort of a take it and leave it approach. This is still the word of God to us today, beloved. But it's given to us in a very careful, fatherly, pastoral way. And so Paul uh, uh, is going to address this uh, situation of, of relationships when we are single. Before we actually dive into that, I want to bring, you, bring a, three sort of perspectives to you to think about. Because they, 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 they embrace the whole um, verses that we read. One is simply a perspective to embrace. It's an eternal perspective. The world is not all there is. I, I hope you understand that. If you're maybe investigating faith, if you're still not a Christian, maybe you've never thought about being a Christian, and, and you're kind of confused by this language, the world is not all there is, what do you mean? Well, the Bible clearly reveals to us that there is a world to come. That right now there is a spiritual reality, but when this world is over, there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, which is going to be perfect. And one of the things that the Bible um, presses us to consider, and certainly Paul in this passage presses us to consider, is that we ought to make decisions in this life with the life to come in mind. Uh, and that's a really important principle for us to keep in our hearts, in our heads. He says, to the married, in this life you will have trouble. The assumption is there's a life to come. A little bit later, he says, for time is limited and this world is passing away. The assumption is that there is a world to come. And so remember this as we're talking about what Paul is going to say to singleness and, uh, uh, um, and marriage. What he is wanting us to understand is that we ought to make decisions in light of the fact that there is a new world coming. Secondly, I think what he wants us to also understand is that there is a rare, very real alternative to a brace other than marriage, and that is singleness. We, we live in a world that seems to somehow say that marriage is the only reality, that marriage is the best reality, and Paul actually is, is, is speaking to that in this passage, and he's saying, listen, there is a very real, legitimate, biblical, God-given alternative for relationships, and that is remaining single. Verse 25, he talks about virgins and the betrothed. In verse 27, he talks about those who are loosed from marriage. In verse 33 and 34, he talks about unmarried men and unmarried women. In verse 39, he talks about when your spouse dies, you're probably happier if you don't remarry. So he's very clearly making um, a case for the fact that singleness is a legitimate option to being married. And I think sometimes we need to hear that. And finally... Um, He's giving us a reality, in a sense, to embrace, and that is that whether we're married or whether we're single, we ought to do whatever we can to seek after God and to search after God hard, that our desire ought to be to please God. And that's the context in which he gives all of this advice to, is, is, is the fact that our goal ought to be to please God. Uh, all of us know living in this world is not an easy thing to do at the best of times. Marriage can be a part of the challenge of living for God in this world. It can give us divided loyalties, divided emphasis in life. It's difficult to focus on God and to serve the needs of a spouse and a family 
and at the same time, to be fully devoted God and yet be fully devoted to your spouse and to your children. And as, you, as he will say, marriage brings with it its very own unique challenges. The very least of them, again, is how one should please their spouse. And so we, we understand this, that, that he, he wants us to consider this very, very sort of unique re- reality of an undivided devotion to the Lord, whether we're married or whether we're single. I probably do need to say this as, as we go through this. Um, as we're talking about singleness, I want you to know I believe that marriage is a good thing. I am happily married to an amazing woman who loves me and, in fact, loves God more than she loves me. And it is a very good relationship that I have. And, in fact, I could never do what I do if I weren't married. And I want you to hear that at the start so that lest you think as we're talking about singleness, somehow I'm down on marriage. I'm not. I've had a good week. (laughs) It's not like I'm speaking out of a bad week of marriage. Come back next week and it will be a different interpretation. Um, so um, I'm good with marriage, and my marriage is good. But Paul gives a number of reasons of why one should consider that singleness is a legitimate option. And the very first one that he gives is in verse uh, uh, 26 there, where he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife but if you do marry you haven't sinned and if a betrothed woman marries she has not sinned the context of which paul is giving that advice is in the context of this little um, phrase the present distress it's a contextual word because it was something that was happening in corinth but it does as application throughout life but we're not really sure what the present distress was what he was referring to, he knew, and the church, the people in the church in Corinth knew, but we don't really know what the present distress was. Some people try and figure it out, and they say, well, there was a famine that was going on, and there was a very severe famine uh, in this part of the world uh, around this time. And uh, that may be the case. I'm not sure why a famine, though, would ever be a justification for suggesting that people remain single. Some people want to say that this present distress is a reference to the end-time reality that will come upon the world, particularly for Christians, when persecution will reach its height. Uh, It makes a little bit of sense because uh, um, uh, persecution is going to increase as these last days continue. And uh, when you are persecuted on your own, it's one thing. But when you are being persecuted beside your family and your children, it's an entirely another thing. But I'm not sure that it's referring to that because he says this present distress. There's something that's actually going on right now that he's, that he's reminding them of that, listen, it's, it's, singleness is a really good option in light of this. And I think really what it probably is, it's a reference to some um, taste of the persecution to come. Uh, Corinth was uh, one that was a Roman colony, and it was facing the pressure of emperor worship, where um, you were expected to offer incense and worship the emperor, and Christians were refusing to do that. Uh, It could be something like that was going on. There was still persecution of Christians that were under the, the, the reign of Nero, who was just brutal to Christians. And so maybe it was just a taste of that. And so Paul's simple advice to them is, listen, in light of this present distress, Life is a little bit easier if you're just suffering on your own as opposed to watching your spouse or your children or your um, 
your relatives suffer as well for their faith. It's a very practical piece of advice, but he's saying just consider the world in which you live, and there may be a reason why you want to choose singleness at this particular point in your life. As Paul surveyed the hostile landscape, and as he knew the present distress that they were going to be under, uh, his suggestion to them was, listen, there's going to be all kinds of strains and worries and tensions that will come. And so it's better if you remain as you are. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. Uh, and so the first reason that he gives is simply because of the present distress. The second thing that he says here is in uh, the end of verse 28 where he says, Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I want to spare you that. I should sit down now. <laughs> But as I see it, Paul really unpacks this sentence over the next few paragraphs. And just so that we have this in our minds and understand what he's saying, those who marry will have worldly troubles. It's not an option. It's not an alternative. There are good marriages and there are bad marriages, but even good marriage has trouble. And so he says, um, you will have trouble. You will have trouble that you won't have if you remain single. The second thing that he says, and, and that's, that's this, is that you will have unique troubles. That these are troubles that come to you as a married person that you won't have as a single person. And so he's saying, I'm just trying to spare you that reality. Um, uh, and I think it's probably better that we understand that you will have trouble in this life or trouble in this world rather than worldly trouble. Uh, Paul is not talking here about uh, challenges that are part of this, this world, this, um, uh, uh, this fallen world necessarily. He's talking about the challenges that come from being married. The word translated trouble is thlipsis, uh, and it variously is translated oppression, uh, tribulation, affliction, a pinching, a pressing together of. It means to squeeze or to press something together. It's a word that is used in the Old Testament after Joseph had been sold into slavery and his brothers were watching him being taken away by the slave traders who had bought him. And uh, it says, we saw the distress of his soul. That's the word that's used here. It's a distress. Uh, it's also used um, uh, of, of the children of Israel when they were under a slavery to the Egyptians. It said, God looked down and he saw the affliction of their people. Uh, that's the same word that's used here. And then finally, there's another illustration of it in Jesus when he's talking about the end times or the last days. And he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. The word tribulation there is the same word here. So he's saying you will have distress. You will have affliction. You will have troubles. When you put two people together, when you marry two sinners together, which we all are, and you press them together and you pinch them together, you're going to have trouble. I've got a book on pre-marriage. Um, on my shelf, and it's simply called When Sinners Say I Do. It's a great title for a book. But the reality is if you put two people who are imperfect together in close proximity to one another, you will have perfect battles. It just happens. There is trouble that comes from being married. And it's a, it's a, it's a reality that single people won't have in the same way. This past week, Kath and I have been exposed to it's nobody around here it's nobody that anyone would know but it's just some very good friends of ours who are just walking through some of the deepest pain that you can walk through as a result of the fact that they're married and the, the ramifications of what that marriage has meant for them and their family 
They would have never experienced that had they not been married. And so Paul is simply saying to them, remaining single can spare you from trouble in this life. Very practical, very real. Thirdly, he says that time is limited and this world is passing away. You might have noticed that in verse 29, he says, for the appointed time has grown very short. And then in verse 31, he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. These verses are incredibly significant. I I don't know if I would say they're the most important in this section, but they're significant because they give us perspective. They help us realize what matters. I often think about the last days. I, I would probably say that there's not a day goes by where I don't think about the return of the Lord. And one of the things that I pray regularly for us as a church, and I've invited you to join me in these seven prayers, is that we would become an expectant church. And by that I mean that we would be more and more a church that would live in the real reality that Jesus Christ is coming back. And that we are going to live in a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. And that part of our life in here is to be shaped, or in fact all of our life, is to be shaped by the reality that this world is passing away. This world is not all there is. There is an amazing world to come. And so we make decisions on this side of that world with relation to the world to come. I hope I've made that clear because it sounds confusing. But that we ought to make decisions in light of the future heaven and earth, not only in light of our present realities around us today. And so Paul starts with this reality. He says that he starts with marriage and then he works through another, uh, another bunch of examples how eternity changes everything, even marriage. Now, I want us to hear this. Paul is not saying this. The end might come tomorrow. Don't get married. It's not what he's saying. Uh, The end might come tomorrow. Don't have children. The end might come tomorrow. Don't buy a house. That's not what Paul is saying at all. What Paul is saying is this. The end is a reality that we are already experiencing now. So think about how you ought to live in a world on its last legs. That's all he's saying is just understand this world is passing away. This world is dying. This world is aging. It will be no more. So make decisions in light of that reality with the future to come. What does it mean for marriage? He says there in verse um, uh, 30 or in verse 29, from now on then, Let those who have wives live as though they have none. That doesn't mean that, okay, we live in separate rooms and we don't talk to each other anymore and we don't have uh, physical relations and there's none of that. That's not at all what Paul is saying. What Paul is wanting them to understand and what he's wanting them to know is that marriage is not a relationship that transfers into eternity. Do you understand that? Marriage is an earthbound relationship. It is temporal. It is transient. It is a wonderful thing, but it is not an eternal relationship. To be sure, marriage is a gift of God and a great gift of God. And to be sure, marriage points us to an eternal or a spiritual reality of Christ's relationship with the church and the church's relationship with Christ. But marriage is earthbound. That death breaks the marriage bond which will never be mended in eternity. We will be like the angels in heaven who neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
And so what Paul is saying here is not that we are to give up on our marriage, but rather we are to think about marriage in the light of eternity. And the primary relationship is our relationship with Christ, not our relationship with a spouse. We need that balance, loved ones. And Paul is saying that to a single person, that that if you're thinking marriage is the be-all, end-all, and it's going to last forever and ever, you're thinking wrongly. Marriage might last for 40, 50 years, 60 years at the most, but then it's over. And there will, no, there will not be marriage in eternity. As one writer put it, marriage, like everything else belonging to this world, is a lame duck. It's not a bad thing, it's just reality, and we need to think about that as we're thinking about marriage. Secondly, he says there, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. It's not that we don't laugh, it's not that we don't cry. But Paul's point is that tears and laughter are not the last word in this world or in this life. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In the new heaven and the new earth, God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. In other words, the pain and the trouble and the tears that you experience this side of the earth are only temporary. They might last for a long time, and they might be deep, and they might be painful, but they're only temporary. And so look at your circumstances in life, those things that cause you to mourn and those things that cause you to rejoice, and realize that there's going to be this incredible reversal that takes place in the new heaven and the new earth. Then he says, those who buy as though they had no goods. Think about this, that, that we are to buy stuff, but not necessarily possess it. We're to do business, but not be consumed by what we own. We're to buy things, but things are not what matter. We are to shop, but not shop as though our life depended upon it. Stuff is not our security. Bank accounts are not our guarantees. We are, not, we, we are, we are to own our possessions, not let them own us. We, we are to live with the amazing world that God has given us, but with our hands open, not with tight grips on it. There's three amazing parables in the book of Luke that help us understand this relationship. There's a, a fellow that, the, that, that Jesus talks about who was sort of in the retirement years, and he had all this stuff. He had a great harvest, and, and he didn't know what to do with it. So he says, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns so that I have more place to put my stuff because I'm going to live forever and ever and ever. And God said to him, you fool, tonight your soul is going to be required of you, and then who will get all this stuff? Jesus is not saying don't have stuff. He's saying don't put all your eggs in the basket of stuff. There's another parable he talks about, the parable of this banquet, which is a picture of the kingdom of God and how God calls us to come and be part of his amazing kingdom, which is an offer to every single person here today that through Christ Jesus, you can enter into the kingdom of God and be at that great banquet. And so the invitation goes out, though, to people. And what are the excuses that the servants who deliver the invitation come back to the the banquet guy and says, well, these guys don't want to come. Well, I got married. I don't have time to come to the banquet. I just bought me a new piece of land. I don't have time to come to the banquet. I just bought me some new oxen, and I want to try them out. I don't have time to come to the banquet. In other words, they were possessed by things of this world. And they couldn't see past this world to eternity. And then finally, there's the parable of, Uh, uh, the last days of Noah's days and of Lot's days. And the description of those days is that they weren't thinking about Christ and the return of Christ and the new world to come because they were marrying, burying, buying, eating, selling, drinking. 
They were consumed by the world. And so remember, Paul is trying to help them balance their perspective and say, yes, we live in this world, but it's passing away. And there's a new reality coming in which these things will have a completely different look. And finally, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Paul here is talking about making use of the world, yet not making full use of it. It's not a contradiction. Enjoy the world, but not all of it. Use the world, but don't let the world shape you or transform you. The pleasures of this world can so shape us and so transform us that we neglect God and the things of God. The world has this incredible power to entangle us, to disarm us, to choke out spiritual life in us, to distract us from eternal realities and the things that really matter. And so Paul is putting marriage into this picture of all these things that are good things, but are things that are going to pass away or they're going to change when the new heaven and the new earth comes. None of the five areas that Paul warns about are inherently bad. Every one of them has a good and a proper place in the Christian life. Each one of them is part of God's good and, and wonderful provision for us for life on earth. But loved ones, understand that marriage and stuff and possessions are all going to end when this world ends. And so Paul is just saying to those who are um, maybe thinking about marriage only with their eyes set in this world. He's saying, listen, um, marriage is a good thing, but it's a temporal relationship. It will not exist in eternity. Practical reasons for remaining single. Verses 32 to verses 35. What Paul writes in these verses, I think, follows naturally. Then if we're to live in this world sort of with our hands holding on to things loosely, what, what's our priority? Well, our priority is pleasing God. We understand this, don't we? What's the, what's the first commandment? that God has given us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your might or your muchness or your strength. And where was that command first articulated? It was articulated in um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 in the context of a marriage and a family. And why I'm pointing that out to you is I, I want us to understand that it is very possible and it is very reasonable and it is a, a right expectation of God that we love Him with all of our heart, mind, and soul and everything that we have in the context of marriage and with children and a family. In other words, marriage and a family does not preclude our ability to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. But marriage is complicated. Marriage brings responsibilities that, if not guarded carefully, can divide our hearts. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Paul makes this straightforward comparison between the concerns of the married and the concerns of the unmarried. He says the unmarried are anxious for the things of the Lord. And I just want to stop here for a moment. I, I can see the clock. You might be here a little bit longer than normal. But, but if you're single today, I hope you understand what Paul is saying here. Whether you're single because of your circumstances right now and you've not yet found the right person to marry, or whether you're single because God has given you the gift of singleness, that the main focus of that life then ought to be, how do I please God? 
It's not about living for yourself. It's not about amassing things for yourself. Paul is saying what the rest of the Bible says about all of us. He's saying our focus should be on pleasing the Lord. And so he says that to, to, the, uh, to those who are um, uh, unmarried. They are anxious. That's a good anxiety. They are anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, how to be um, holy in body and spirit, how to be preoccupied with the things of the Lord. The married, though, he says are anxious about the things of the world, about how to please their spouse. That's not a bad thing at all. That's just a reality of marriage. I was thinking about this. Um, For those of us who are married, do the demands and expectations that you or I place on our spouse make them more anxious or less anxious? In other words, do I live in such a way and do I have expectations in such a way that my needs on this world are minimal and I do everything that I can to encourage my spouse to follow hard after God? That my demands and my needs and my wants don't pull them away from God, but rather they're so minimal that they are able to flee to God. I think that's something for us to think about. Time, our time expectations, our economic expectations, our relational expectations, are they so heavy on our spouse that pleasing us is a full-time job? Do we hinder devotion to the Lord or do we, de- do we encourage it? See, Paul's point here is significant, I think, though, in the end of the day. Life of a Christian married man or married woman is different from the life of an unmarried Christian man or Christian woman. Different anxieties, different responsibilities. And Paul's not writing here about the freedom from obligation. He's writing here about the freedom for service, the freedom to please the Lord. I was thinking about this uh, the prophetess Anna. Some of you might remember Anna. Um, an exception, I get this. But we find Anna, um, her story told in Luke chapter 2. And she was one that, um, after seven years of marriage, uh, her husband died. And it says then, up until she was 84 years old, she served the Lord day and night in the temple. That that was her passion, that was her desire, that, that she was freed from the responsibilities of a husband, and she just dove full in to worshiping and serving the Lord. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. I wonder if Paul had met her. Very likely he might have met her in the temple at some point. But you hear what Paul says in verse 35? He says, I I say this for your benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but in order to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what Paul is concerned about. And he's saying, listen, as a single person, you have different anxieties and maybe even less anxieties you can you can serve god without the concerns of of a spouse and possibly a family and so remaining single can open the door to single-minded devotion to the lord i did this in the first service and i'm going to do it in this service i i don't really have time to do verses 36 to 38 and it's not because they're difficult in fact um, many would say they're the most difficult verses in all of um, paul's literature I don't, um, so I'm not going to try and solve that for you. I, I do believe in, in the end of the day what those verses are talking about 
is they're referring to a couple that is engaged together. And as uh, this couple is engaged, they're wondering what to do because they're hearing all this talk and there's confusion in the church about sexual relationships, sexual purity, marriage, singleness. And, and so they're married and they're, or they're, 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 they're engaged and they're wondering what to do. And so Paul writes to them and the, the gist of it is, listen, you're free to decide. And so they're engaged and, and the young man is wanting to get married partly because he's got passion. He's got sexual passion. And Paul already talked about it in verse 7. He says, listen, it's better to marry than burn. And so Paul says, listen, if, 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 if you're engaged and that passion is strong, go ahead and get married. You haven't sinned. Go at it. Get married. But he says, listen, if you're engaged and you're thinking this through and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're beginning to change your point of view and God is doing something in your heart and, and you think that maybe the single life is for you and you chat it over with the person you're engaged to and there's no harm, there's no hurt, uh, that, that it's a good break in the engagement, then, then okay, be single. That's a good thing as well. Um. And he says at the end of all of that, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay, or, or sorry, he says that, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage does even better. It's just not better in the sense of morally better, but just in better in the sense of the things that we've already been talking about in freedom to serve the Lord. I, I will end with this, verses 39 and 40. And again, not with everything that I think needs to be said here, but a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. That's just a reminder, isn't it, loved ones, that if you're considering getting married, the choice of a spouse should be a follower of Jesus Christ. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I know that would be true of my wife, because she could never find anybody as good as me. <laughs> <laughs> I know we'll have a talk about this when we get home. <laughs> but uh, Paul's point in those verses, I think, is this one. And it is a truth, loved ones, that we really do need to hear. And it is simply the permanence of marriage. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Marriage is permanent. So startling was this word of Jesus, and it originally came from Jesus. So startling was this word of Jesus to the disciples that they said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They understood that once you decided to get married, that that was a relationship that God intended to last until the death of the spouse. I did speak a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, about the fact that I think there are a couple ways in which one is free from a marriage. That is through um, uh, gross sexual sin, as Jesus talks about, except for sexual immorality. We looked at it a couple weeks ago, a desertion. If an unbelieving spouse leaves the believing spouse, then that uh, spouse, I believe, is not bound any longer, is free to remarry, and through death. If one dies, then... If there's not if one dies, if their spouse dies, they are free to remarry. Otherwise, marriage is intended to be permanent. And I think this is advisable for those who are thinking about getting married. You don't go into marriage thinking, well, this is as long as love lasts, or this is you know, and, and you know, this is until um, something else comes along. When when you're thinking about marriage, we think of it as a permanent relationship this side of heaven. And it's hard for a young couple, I think, 
thinking about this kind of stuff, and you would say to them, well, marriage is permanent. They say, of course it's permanent. It's still death to us part. And then you ask somebody who's been married for 30 or 40 years, and they say, yeah, it's permanent, but it is tough. There are a lot of difficulties that one will face along the road that will cause you to question the permanence of that relationship. But I still believe it's permanent. And so this is one of the things that Paul is giving advice to a single person about. He says, you know, as you're thinking about marriage, understand that this relationship that you are entering into is a relationship to which you are bound until your spouse dies. It's not meant to be a negative thing. It's just meant to be reinforce the reality that Jesus said, which was God's intention for marriage, that it be for life. And so remaining single, keeps one away from the permanent relationship of marriage. This is all helpful stuff. As I've been working through this, you know, um, I think there's two reasons that Paul, in summary, gives for his advice here, his pastoral advice is, one is simply that um, he advises that a single person consider that as a legitimate option because it will spare you from trouble in life. Uh, it's not saying, again, uh, I, I do want to say this, it's not saying that marriage is not good. My wife and I uh, actually talked about this quite a bit, and it's something that I will say from time to time in a marriage that is extremely tough. This side of heaven, I don't think there is any relationship that an individual will ever be in that will bring about their sanctification more than marriage. When you live with another person and you're stuck with them, <laughs> all right, probably not the best word, you're committed to them, <laughs> you have to, they will, they will see your weak spots. They will see your sinfulness. They will see those things in you that God needs to work on. And there is a wonderful, sanctifying reality to marriage. But for a single person, um, you can be spared some of the other unspiritual troubles of marriage. And I think the second one that Paul just wants to get forth again and again and again is that it allows a person to serve God undistractedly for all of their days. I don't know where you are in this context. I can imagine what some of you are thinking. Um, if you have time today, when you go home, just open this passage of Scripture again and just read through it. Let it soak into you and say, Spirit of God, would you help me to process this and understand it as you intended it to be heard? And I think God will give you some great encouragement from his word today.